Um, actually, my daughter Frances, uh, my name's Andrew, by the way, if you haven't met me, one, one of the other ministers here. Uh, my daughter Frances is about the only person who's really been loving the Olympics because um, she's obsessed with the blonde compare on Channel 9. And so we turn it on in the morning to watch the highlights and she squeals with delight when she comes on. It's great fun. Uh, you've got an outline there, which also looks rather like an Olympic uh, event. Um, but that's because we're trying something a bit more, I guess, ambitious uh, in this series. We're, we're trying to really get a, a sense of how the whole Bible fits together. Um, but let me pray for God's help as we get into it. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you be with us this evening and that you would speak to us powerfully through your word that we may put our hope in your son Jesus more and more. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to start actually by talking to you about what your greatest hope is. Uh, we all have many hopes and goals, uh, of course, but what is your final, your ultimate hope? I don't mean it to be a, a trite question, uh, although you may not really know how to answer that question. Um, I think that's partly because our culture has taught us to continually limit our horizons when it comes to what we're hoping for, um, to limit it to the kind of hope our privileged modern Western context can, at a pinch, provide something like a long life of doing interesting, hey, maybe even useful work with a relatively easy death, seeing your family succeed, and living in material comfort along the way. That's something to shoot for. That's something that is more or less achievable if you're lucky and the climate doesn't change too fast. But what if we could hope for more than that? What would we hope for if we were freed for a moment from the expectations and assumptions of our culture? Well, many people and cultures throughout human history have, in fact, hoped for more, more than we do. Uh, most of the world's religions have seen human nature as pointing to a fulfillment greater than can be experienced in this life. Uh, they've described this in innumerable and contradictory ways, of course. Um, just random examples. Hinduism uh, sees hope in terms of returning to Brahman, being reabsorbed into ultimate reality. Whereas in many forms of Islam, the hope is for individual resurrection and life in paradise. They're actually very different. But the point is that our modern contraction of hope down to what we can see and touch and buy in 70 or 80 years, that's, that's not normal. Yet, dare we hope, really, for anything more than that? Is there any point? Aren't we better off with hopes that are smaller, sure? More mundane, maybe, but at least doable. Well, as we continue our series on key themes across the Bible, which we've called A Divine Harmony, as we continue that today by looking at the temple, I hope we will see how we may indeed hope for something more. Because the story of the temple is the story of God's purposes to dwell with his people so that far greater than simply hoping for a relatively pleasant life, we may in fact dare to hope to live with God 
I hope we will see also, though, that we can't look forward to this just by rights, just by virtue of our humanity, but only because God has given us a truly extraordinary gift in Jesus. Now, I hope tonight we will catch a glimpse of the extraordinary thing that that is, so that we're inspired to live bolder lives with bigger horizons. So I want to invite you to come with me and see how the theme of the temple unfolds in Scripture. Uh, We'll be working our way through a number of passages, so it'd be really great to have a Bible in your hand. I'll give you the page numbers as we go, uh, but there's some other references, smaller ones, that I've printed on your outline, so get ready to look at them as well. I hope it will be an exhilarating journey. As I said, the story of the temple is the story of God's purpose to dwell with his people. And because of that, we need to start our journey a bit earlier than the temple itself. In fact, we need to go right back to the beginning. Because in the opening chapters of the Bible, we get a hint, a momentary glimpse of what God's purpose for human beings was. Look on your outline there at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The man and woman hide, of course, because they've just eaten fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree they were forbidden to eat. And this is the beginning of the disaster of human rebellion, which unfolds in the Bible from this point on. But just notice that the hint we get here, the Lord God was walking in the garden in the garden Adam and Eve lived in. He was taking his evening stroll. And what's more, it was clear he was looking for them. Look at where it finishes. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He wanted to find them. Now, although we may not understand completely what this means, this is a hint, a momentary glimpse of God's intention for his creation to have a relationship of friendship and intimacy between himself and the man and the woman. Life together. Now, as we'll see, this is an image that the Bible will draw on in order to speak about the temple. Stay tuned. Okay, let me take you forward. Tragically, humanity's sin leads to their being cast out of the garden and away from the presence of God. And there's a radical distance between human beings and God from this point on. Now, as we've seen over the past weeks, God's solution to this mess involves choosing a people to be his very own, the nation of Israel. Over several centuries, God grows this people from one initial family, Abraham and Sarah, and then he rescues them from a situation of slavery in Egypt, led out by Moses. Uh, The story of this is found in Genesis and Exodus. If you haven't read them, Give it a go. It's great stuff. Uh, Or you could just see the Disney film, The Prince of Egypt. Who's seen that? Okay, lots. Great. I think it's a great film, but it's not actually a complete recreation of the book of Exodus. And this is because the second half of the book of Exodus is devoted to instructions for and the recording of building a tent called the Tabernacle. Now, you may be surprised that that didn't grab the filmmaker's attention. Blockbuster stuff. The Tent of Egypt, the sequel, maybe. But the, fact, the strange fact is the book of Exodus, kind of there's this, 
There's this movement from this rip-roaring, action-packed story, and then thump, it grinds to this excruciating slow pace as God spells out the detail of how this tent is to be built. Now, that should make us stop and take notice. What it tells us, I think, is that this tent is worth paying attention to. It's actually quite important. So let me take you briefly to have a look at part of the account of it. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. It's on page 78 in the Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 25. Page 78. Starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet, yarn, and fine lemon, linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows. Okay, that's weird, but that's all right. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. We'll come back to the ephod. Verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The purpose of this tent is there in verse 8. It's so that God may live with his people. And it's for this reason that the building has to be done very carefully, exactly according to the pattern. Now, the instructions follow in great detail, and they begin with what we know as the ark, which was a kind of chest with a gold lid on which there were two molded statues of cherubim. Now, cherubim, we don't actually know much about them, but they seem to have been a kind of winged angelic creature. And the cherubim were facing each other on top of the ark with their wings spread out, touching over the ark. Maybe not touching. Can't quite remember. And the ark, this ark would come to stand at the heart of the temple. Now, its significance is made clear if you cast your eyes down to verse 22 of chapter 25. God says, There above the cover, that's the lid, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. The space above the ark would be the point, it seems, at which God would meet with Israel. The point, if you like, where heaven and earth would meet. And it's for this reason, actually, that later in the Bible, uh, God's full name is sometimes given as kind of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned above the cherubim. That's kind of how you describe God's full title in the Old Testament. Now, in the chapters that follow, uh, we get all the instructions for the tabernacle. Uh, You'll be pleased to hear we're not going to read them all. But the finished product would look something like that magnificent drawing you have on your outline. Uh, Of course, it would have been bigger than this. Um, It would have to be at least three times this size. (laughs) Would have been bigger. It's not to scale. But you get the picture. There's an outer court, and then the tabernacle is in the middle, uh, about 13 meters by 4 meters. And then... At the end of the tabernacle, the kind of center room is called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. There's this kind of increasing scale of holiness as you get closer in. And that center space, the Most Holy Place, could be entered only once a year by one person, the high priest. 
Now, it's worth pausing on some of the instructions for the priests uh, because they actually help us not miss what a remarkable thing this was. Uh, So just turn over to chapter 28, just one page, actually two pages over because it's verse 31. Chapter 28, verse 31. Let me read you about the ephod. Chapter 28, verse 31. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth with an opening for the head in its center. Actually, sorry, I'll just pause. Um, So this garment is like a poncho kind of thing with a head opening. Now, this is quite funny. One of the things you swear in Sydney when you become an Anglican minister is that you will not wear the chasuble. Okay? It's weird. You swear all these good things. You say, I promise that I'll teach the word faithfully and and I promise that I won't wear the chasuble. You know, what is a chasuble? It's something that looks a bit like this. And the reason we swear it is because we don't think of ourselves as priests in the temple. We'll come back to why that is later. Anglicans are sometimes called priests, but that's kind of unhelpful. When we do communion, when Roger does communion, for example, he's not making a sacrifice. That's why I will not wear the chasuble. So if I ever do, just pick me up on that. (laughs) It will look weird, so it's unlikely. Okay, verse 32 again. With an opening for the head in its center, there shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening so that it will not tear. Good idea. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Whoa! Seriously, it's a bit of a shock. Isn't that a bit extreme? So that he will not die? But that's just because we've forgotten what an incredible thing is actually going on here. It is no small thing for people, sinful people, to come into the presence of the holy God. You think you can just whack up any tent? You think that's the kind of thing that's safe? Serving in the tabernacle is more like handling an unexploded bomb. This is an incredible thing for God to dwell with people. And the minute detail and instruction stop us taking it for granted. And so at the end of Exodus, when in our first reading we saw the cloud fill the tabernacle with the Lord's presence, we know that actually something astonishing has happened here. To make sure we get the point, let me show you that passage from Leviticus that's printed on your outlines, Leviticus 26. This helps us see the significance of what's going on. God says, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you, which means kind of reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I will walk among you. Did you hear the echo of Genesis there? The promise of the tabernacle, you see, was... Nothing less than a solution to the fall. That, however, is not the end of the story. The tabernacle as a tent was designed for traveling. And so when, after the long saga of Israel's conquest of the land and the development of the monarchy, which takes up the next few books of the Bible, 
when finally Israel was established in the land God had promised to Abraham, the tabernacle was replaced with a temple. That is a permanent structure. And the temple was built by King Solomon, son of King David. It had a similar design to the tabernacle, but was a bit more ornate, a bit bigger. And the Holy of Holies in the temple was a perfect cube covered entirely in gold. Now, the completion and dedication of this temple was perhaps one of the the greatest moments in Israel's history. And our second Bible reading from 1 Kings 8 is actually part of Solomon's prayer at this occasion. Uh, Let's look at that briefly again. Turn to page 336, 1 Kings chapter 8, 336. Um, There's lots in Solomon's prayer that interests us, but look especially at what he says in verse 27. 1 Kings 8, 27, 336. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? You see, Solomon realizes, he set up the temple, in fact, the cloud has come into it. And he realizes that the whole idea of God dwelling in the temple is a bit complicated. After all, he built the temple. Can the creator of heaven and earth really live in something that he made? Well, yes and no. Not in a simple way, not in a crude way. So Solomon goes on to express a a more complicated understanding. Look at verse 28. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. See, God's actual dwelling place, says Solomon, is is heaven. Or or sort of heaven, because he already pointed out that actually heaven can't contain God. God made heaven, after all. But the point is that God is not simply in the temple. His name is there. That is, God has identified himself with this place. His eyes are open towards it. He cares about it. What we see here is that Solomon understands the temple not as kind of crudely God's house, but as somehow the focal point of his presence and activity in the world. Does that kind of make sense? Now, this understanding is actually confirmed in the way God responds to Solomon's prayer. Over one page again, we get to chapter 9, 1 Kings chapter 9. And look at verse 1. Actually, I'll take you down to verse 3. This is the Lord's response. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Um, Earlier, we'd seen the cloud fill the temple. So God is there, but he's not there in a, in a simple way. And this is, this is a beautiful thing, really, isn't it? I mean, could we expect anything more than this? 
God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's transcendent. And yet he has put his heart on this place. His eyes are there. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, it's not quite what Leviticus promised, is it? I will walk among you, said God. Is this, was that just a nice dream? Is this a bit less than that? Or do both of them point to something more? Actually, I think they do, and I'll show you what it is. I just want us to notice that before we move on. There's a bigger problem, though. We can't just stay with these abstract questions about presence, absence, because a bigger problem really quickly emerges, which is that this whole situation depends on Israel's faithfulness. Look at verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6, God says, But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff. And it goes on. You see, even God's dwelling with Israel in this way is fragile, precarious, because it depended on Israel's faithfulness. And so it wasn't actually long before this threat that the Lord would reject his temple and abandon his people became a reality. As the remainder of the books of Kings, if you read them, narrate, God's people rejected him so that this judgment fell. Now, this period in the Old Testament, the collapse of Israel, is when the characters called the prophets appear. And the task of the prophets, um, actually, just worth noticing, the writings of the prophets take up a huge chunk of the Old Testament. Uh, In the Pew Bibles, it's page 675 through to 951, right? It's like... That bit. Uh, Actually, it's not quite that bit. About that bit. There we go. Um, The job of the prophets was to announce God's word to his people, uh, to show them how God saw the situation and what he was doing in the midst of it. Uh, One of the most famous prophets was Jeremiah. People heard of Jeremiah? You may have? Yep. Let me take you to a part of what Jeremiah said about the temple. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Page 755, 755. Starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. That is the temple. This is a temple sermon. And there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions, and deal with each other justly if you do not oppress the alien 
the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, Solomon, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And then Jeremiah goes on to talk about what God's going to do. He says, go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. That's a place that the tabernacle was located earlier in Israel's history. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom. If you want to understand that more, um, talk to me afterwards or do Roger's intro to the Bible course. But what we see here, you see, is that the temple had become a kind of have been twisted into a kind of protective talisman. Something that could just be presumed upon as if God was like a genie you could keep getting wishes from. And so God declares his intention, as he had to Solomon, to abandon his temple and thrust Israel from his presence. And that is, in fact, what happened. In 587 BC, the army of the Babylonian Empire invaded the land of Judah sacked Jerusalem, burnt the temple to the ground and took the people into exile. The temple had failed as a way of God dwelling with his people. The temple had failed, but God's purpose had not. Uh, For the exile of God's people was not actually the end of his dealings with them. I'm going over a lot of ground very quickly here, I'm sorry. But in the ashes of that destruction, the prophets began to describe a new hope. We don't have time to look at all of what they said, but just look at the passage from Ezekiel I printed on your outline there. Ezekiel says, actually God says through Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a prophet who himself, by the way, experienced the siege of Jerusalem and was taken into exile in Babylon. And he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. You can hear the echoes of Leviticus 26, can't you? God's promise to be with his people stood firm. Now, to cut a long story very short, it was words such as these that motivated the exiles in Babylon eventually to return and start rebuilding the temple. Uh, You can read the story of that in the Bible book of Ezra. And they built it in trust 
that God had not given up on them and that the day would come when he would dwell among them. And the temple that those who returned built was the predecessor of the one that stood in Jerusalem almost 500 years later when a carpenter from Nazareth entered and with righteous outrage drove out those who were buying and selling as we read in our third reading, which you might like to turn to now. It's on page 1051 from John chapter 2. Jesus, you see, was at the same time loyal to the temple and highly critical of it. He was loyal to what it represented, but he despised what it had become. The Gospels actually record Jesus taking up Jeremiah's words upon his own lips and denouncing the temple of his day as broken. And in fact, what we saw him say in John about, if you destroy this temple, I'll build it again in three days, that's actually one of the accusations that, they, that leads to his crucifixion, that they throw at him in the trial. Now, the reason for this conflict is not far to see but it's, it's deep beyond comprehension. The reason is that Jesus himself was the fulfillment of what the temple had promised. He was, if I can put it this way, he was the dwelling place of God, the meeting point between God and his creation. We saw this in our reading from John, actually, when it says in verse 21 of chapter 2 that when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days, it says the temple he had spoken of was his body. And in fact, if you just turn back one page to chapter 1, verse 14, John's already made this point. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here John's describing what Jesus' presence in the world means. And the word he uses for made his dwelling is actually, could be translated, tabernacled or pitched his tent. The word, God the word, became flesh and pitched his tent among us. See, John's claim is that in Jesus, God himself has finally come to dwell among us. Now, if you're not used to it, and if you just stop for a, think, a second and think about it, that is a wild thought. And it's even wilder because it's clear that here we go even further than Solomon described the temple to be. As Jesus himself said at another point, Something greater than the temple is here. It's not just that God's name is there, although it is. It's not just that his eyes and his heart are there, though they are. He's there. He's there. He's in the flesh. In Jesus, you see, Solomon's question, will God really dwell on earth, actually receives a clear and unambiguous answer. Yes. Sure, not just on earth. That's not all there is to say about God, but he's really there. As the Apostle Paul put it, 
It's on your outlines in Colossians chapter 1. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, that raises some pretty enormous questions, not least of which is the question raised by Exodus. Why doesn't Jesus just kill everybody? Why doesn't God's presence just burn everything up in the fire of his holiness as he comes into contact with ordinary sinners like you and me? Why doesn't Jesus need to be walled off and only approached with extreme care? We'll actually see the key to the answer to this question next week when we look at sacrifice. But for now, let's just rejoice in the fact that Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, rather than threatening to take our life, he gives it. He, he touches lepers and makes them clean. He restores people to life. Everywhere he went, he brought forgiveness and new life. In Jesus, you see, Ezekiel's words were fulfilled. God had come to be with his people truly and personally, bringing not death, but peace and holiness. Well, we're almost at the end of our journey through the Bible, looking at the theme of the temple. But before we finish, we need to just notice one other important place the Bible takes the idea of the temple. You see, because Jesus is himself God come to dwell among us, those who are connected to him through faith, his people, can also therefore be described as the temple. The church is the body of Christ in the New Testament. It is a temple of the living God. Um, we won't look at it now, but if you want to chase it up, have a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Those words are used. See, because God is in Christ, God is among those who are joined to him by faith. The church is a temple of God. Now, uh, lest we be confused, let me make it absolutely clear that we're not talking about buildings. Building language is used, but it's metaphorical. What we're talking about is people, the community. That doesn't mean buildings are worthless, but they're not temples. The words written up here, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord, to be honest, are a bit of a mistake. Bummer, because they're really nice. But this building is not a house of God. We are. So we don't need to take them down. Let's just remember that this building is designed to serve a community. And when you come here, there normally are other people. Now, this has all sorts of consequences for the way we think about and engage with church and uh, we don't need to get into them now, but can I just point out that when people like me or other people talk about it actually being quite important, the way you treat church, you know, they're not, we're not just doing that because we, we think that. There is actually quite a lot in the Bible that gets you to that place. The most extraordinary thing is said in the Bible about the church. It is the dwelling place of God. Let's conclude, though, by returning to the idea of hope. For the biblical story about the temple that we've seen unfold tonight is what fuels the great vision of hope 
with which the Bible concludes. And so just to finish, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. It's on page 1,230. Revelation chapter 21, I'll start at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, Of course, the passage continues on wonderfully. But let's just stop here and feel the weight of that sentence. Now, the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. You see, we don't fully experience yet everything that Jesus means. But the day will come when we will. When because of him, the promise of life with God will be enjoyed. And just cast your eyes down to verse 22, where the idea of the temple is picked up again. Verse 22, John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. There'll be no temple because there's no need for a temple anymore. Because there's a better temple. God himself in and through the lamb, which is John's way of talking about Jesus. He will be the temple filling everything with the light of his glorious presence. The story of the Bible can be read as the story of God's intention to dwell with his people, to live with them. It raises all sorts of questions. It's challenging and confronting in many ways. But it shows us how because of Jesus, we may hope for something truly magnificent. So let me urge you not to exchange it for something less, something mundane, something doable but to put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, the one in whom all God's fullness was pleased to dwell. Because, brothers and sisters, you were made to live with God. You were made for this kind of thing. And so let me finish just by reading two more verses from Revelation, because I can't resist. Chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. I'll start from just before. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful thing to hope for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the astonishing promises you give to us in the scriptures. We thank you for this extraordinary hope of life with you. 
Lord, we, we know we couldn't dare to hope for it were it not for the story of what you have done in Jesus, in coming yourself among us to save us so that we may be with you. And we put our faith and our hope in you, Lord, and ask that you keep us in that all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.